Welcome to the Everything Music Ed podcast. I'm your host, Tom Borning. In this podcast, you'll hear from teachers, musicians, and others about their experiences in learning and teaching music. In today's episode, we talk with percussionist and recording artist Damon Grant. We talk about his podcast, Discussions in Percussion. We also discuss him teaching private lessons without having a teaching degree. We talk about some really cool, memorable performances that he has. And we also talk a little bit about him being a black American and growing up playing in bands that were predominantly white. Lastly, I'd like to add that Damon Grant is one of the nicest guys I've ever met. Even though I knew him years ago from college, he continually reaches out every year on my birthday with incredible nice messages on Facebook Messenger. And when I approached him about being on my podcast, he was very kind and gave me words of encouragement and also some very helpful and needed advice and tips. And so I just want to thank Damon very much for coming on the show, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. Christine just left. She was like, oh, I really have to get to work, but I, I so badly wanted to say hi to Damon. This is this was her only opportunity. She's missing out. I know. Well, it's not necessarily our only opportunity. You're like coming to Nantucket. Yeah? Did oh, I see that? Yes, I am. That's I am cool. next week. I mean... I'll be there for a whole week. Not that that's the easiest jaunt for us, but uh, <laughs> anyways... I think just the hop last... on the ferry. That's true. I have a boat too. I've never done that ride in my boat. I'd love to try. Oh, it. dude! <laughs> it's small. You it's have a, a boat. small. It's a small boat. It's like nineteen feet. But uh, I think the last time I saw you, I was thinking about this, nineteen ninety-seven, and I was getting ready to go grad school auditions in New York City, and I remember talking to you down in like. Oh, the big room. Is it 36, 32, 30, whatever? 36. Right. 36, yeah. Right? And because um, the other thing I was going to do, I was going to, while I was there auditioning, I was going to go see the Carnegie Hall Jazz Band. And you were like freaking out. You were like, what? What? I can't believe you're going to see that band. And it, yeah, it was great. But Was it Carnegie Hall or was it the Vanguard? It was Carnegie Hall. Yeah, it was the Carnegie okay. Hall Jazz Band. It was... um. John Faddis was leading the group. Lou Soloff played lead trumpet. Randy Brecker was in the trumpet section. Byron Stripling was in the trumpet section. It was the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. Like, pff, I don't know. It's pretty nuts. So it was pretty intense. But uh, anyways, I'm here with Damon so, Grant. I'm here with Damon Grant. This is incredible. I'm so happy to talk to you. Wait, because you just named that trumpet section, fun fact um, when John Faddis came to play, I think he played at uh, mm. Bowker, Bowker Auditorium. Bowker, yeah. yeah. And I went to go see the show with Danny Whitestone. Danielle Whitestone, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so 
we go backstage afterwards and she wanted to meet John Faddis and we go over there and she asked him like how do you play so high and <laughs> his response was I don't know man I just been always been able to do this but I do drink this and he pointed to a bottle of uh, organic blueberry juice and she's like that's it I just need to drink that from now on <laughs> Yeah, the uh, the little, the little, the little angle on his tooth definitely has a help. <laughs> it's like there's so many guys. It's like you look at him and you're like, oh, you play these crazy high notes, and you have this little chip in the front of your tooth or an angle on your front tooth. It's pretty funny. How many? I Next mean, thing you know, you're taking a file to your teeth. <laughs> oh, there there are guys that do it. There are guys that, that oh, do man. it. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. Uh, it's crazy to me, but. Anyways, uh, I'm so happy you came on. Um, so you have you have your own podcast. D- what is it? Dis- uh, discussions and percussion. Conversations and percussion. Discussions and no, percussion. you were right. The, you were right the first time. Discussions yeah. and percussion. And I definitely will admit, even though as a trumpet player, I have listened to a couple episodes. I specifically listened to. The one with my boy Dave Fox on there. I love Dave. And uh, uh, just, it's a great, uh, when did you start doing your podcast? Uh, Almost eight years ago. Um, I started it with this other percussionist, Marcos Torres. And uh, both of us were listening to other drum podcasts. And they were all focusing on drum set players. And specifically, like all, you know, all the rock star drum set players. Steve Gadd and Dennis Chambers and all those, you know, heavy, heavy names in the drum set community. And we, as percussionists, were like, well, nobody's interviewing the percussionist. So, you know, we started thinking about how we we're going to put it together. And we wanted to interview percussion from all avenues of percussion, as well as educators. That was also important to us, too. Percussion educators. So, you know, drum set players are still welcome on the podcast, but um, it's not the only type of uh, percussion or drumming that we interview. We definitely try to cover all types of uh, percussion. Um, since then, he has actually left during the pandemic to pursue other things. Um, so, But I told him, I was like, your pictures, I'm never changing the picture. You're going <laughs> to still be on there and everything. And he comes back every once in a while to help me interview people. Um, we were actually interviewing somebody during the pandemic that said, uh, you know, hopefully this time will never happen again. But now that we have this time off, this is the time to get to your list of, oh, when I'm not on the road so much, I was going to do this. And one of the things that Marcos wanted to do was um, he got a performance degree like I did, but my performance degree was a major and his performance degree was a minor. His major was actually recording, engineering, and production. So he was like, I want to actually give that a shot and see if I can actually produce and record. And so he's in the pandemic, and since then, he's put out like four to six albums of other people that he's produced. So, Oh, wow. That's cool. Well, so yeah. let's, let's back up a little bit. So if I'm not mistaken, you're from Connecticut? I am. Yeah. I grew up in or, Fairfield or, County, Connecticut. Fairfield County. Yeah. And, and uh, uh, so... What do you remember about early music education for you? Like, I'm talking, like, maybe even before you played an instrument. Uh, well, the 
for, fortunately, my mom's best friend was a piano teacher. So she was the first person to kind of give me lessons. And I went to a on piano? elementary. Yep, on piano. Oh, cool. Um, and she was actually saying that I, uh, I was, you know, like my, my comprehension of things was really advanced for my age. So she was pushing. Actually, let me go way back. It didn't start with piano. Um, I lied. It actually started with a Muppet drum set. I, uh, there was a period of time where I lived in Scottsdale, Arizona. And uh, there's a picture somewhere floating around. But um, my parents got me a Muppet drum set, which was a toy, because the two shows that I watched religiously were Sesame Street, that came on at 4 o'clock, and The Muppet Show, which came on at 6 o'clock. And I couldn't really tell time. So sometimes at like 1220, I'd be like, TV, TV. And my mom would be like, no, that's not yet. Sesame Street's got a little while longer, you know. Um, but I knew like when the hands were at that angle, I was like, it's show, let's go. Um, but the Muppet drum set was cool because, you know, it had on the front bass drum had all of the Muppet characters. But the thing they didn't think through was that the drum heads were actually paper. And the drumsticks oh, yeah. they gave you were like a hard plastic. So your stick would like go through the drum head like every third day. And my mom said I would go get the tape, scotch tape, and I would try to tape up the head. And then it just got to a point where it was like unsalvageable. They're like, all right, we got to get rid of this thing. That's when I switched over to piano because my mom's best friend, uh, Cassandra Eaton, was teaching piano. And she said that like I was really advanced for my age. So she and wanted me to go that? to. how old was that? Like how old did you do that? Um, probably fourth, somewhere in three or four. Because oh, okay. I was in Scottsdale around two and three. I came back, I think, at like the end of first grade. Um, is that like what? Is that like five, six? End of first yeah. grade? Yeah, six. Yeah, so, first grade, but like six, yeah. So that's when I came back and um, I had tested really oh so cassandra was saying to my mom i should check out this private school that she teaches at and it was like this high level private school and i tested off the charts for everything just all the all of the categories and my mom was like mm. my mom and dad talked it over and they're like do we want to send him to this like advanced school or do we want him to just be normal so they sent me to like this normal um elementary school which ended up being a magnet school because like there was a lottery to get me in, but they didn't want me to go through like that whole, like, private, sure. Uh, what I don't know what you even call it, prep conservatory. You know, like yep. besides the fact that it was super expensive, they're like, we just kind of want to have a normal, round, well-rounded life. So I got into a magnet school through a lottery, and um, there was a music teacher there, Christine Raskin, and she had ORF instruments. So we were doing like the uh, metallophones and the yep. small was it marimbas i guess and yeah. i was like really and she also was like really creative with like other things i think she was there was a couple people at that taught at that school that were definitely like hippies you know like our gym teacher uh mr kretch there was people you're like you were at Woodstock, weren't you? <laughs> yeah, right. But they would think out of the box. And one of the, th you know, I never will forget this. One of the things that Ms. Raskin taught us with rhythm was she wanted us to understand, 
long and short, loud and soft, some basic music concepts, but she would do it with other things. So, like, she would take the barcode of, like, a box of cereal and, like, photocopy it and blow it up. And then we'd, if it was a big, thick line, we would clap our hands and go long. Ah. And if it was a short line, we'd go short. So it was no, like, time signature, but we're looking at these rhythms and we're seeing long, short, short, long, short, long, short. And we're kind of getting these basic music concepts, but that was one of the things she taught us. Um, there were instruments that I had never seen before that she had in her classroom. So this was all going on um, at an early age. And then in third grade, they finally let you play like real instruments. And I wanted to play uh, drums, but they're like no band instruments till middle school. And then I was like, well, I've been listening to my dad and my mom's records because my dad had all these 33 and a thirds. He used to work at um, CBS for a little while. Hmm. And he worked for Dr. Peter Goldmark, who was the guy that invented the 33 and a third record. Oh, my. Because uh, at the time, like all these TV stations, CBS, ABC, NBC, they were hiring scientists to come out with the next thing, whether it was a color television um you know, cassette tape, whatever they were, you know, they're trying to push the envelope as far as technology. And my dad was working for Dr. Peter Goldmark and he was a DJ for a little while. And he had all these 33 and a third records. My mom had all these 45s, which were all this, uh, you know, the hit singles and with the B sides on the back. And then also my dad had some 78s and I would just listen to these records all the time. And most of them were jazz so when they said that I had to play a string instrument, my first in inclination was to play bass. And they were like, you're too short. Here's a cello. <laughs> because, yeah. you know, string instruments come at half sizes, quarter sizes, sure. all that stuff. So um, I was playing cello, and I still, like, couldn't get this thing on the bus because I was so small. So they're like, why don't you think about violin? And my great-grandfather, who was a pastor from jamaica kingston um he had a violin and it was like super super old and to the point where my violin teacher was like this isn't a stradivarius but it's on that level and you should get it appraised and we did and they were like yeah it's you know it's pretty rare and it's pretty old but there's this crack uh that we can repair but it's not it the crack is going to take away from the value so I still have it. It's in the corner of my drum room over there. Mm. Um, and I played this violin until like sixth grade. And then I got to middle school and I was like, okay, band instruments. Let's go. Nice. <laughs> Enough of this violin yeah, stuff. I started you know. on violin too, man. I played it for a year. I was awful. Yeah. yeah it's. Just, I mean, it was cool. I would always turn it sideways to play like a guitar. And they were like, nope, it goes under your chin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, so then I got to middle school and um, like all the friends that I used to skateboard with were playing drums. And I just wanted to hang out with them. So I switched over to drums. Uh, Bob Brewer was the band director there. And uh, a friend of mine, Gerald Miles, who's still my best friend to this day, he had come down from another school in Fairfield, like a magnet school called Stratford Academy, where they taught him, you know, tons of stuff. So he came back and he's like, what do you guys like eating paint chips? You guys are missing out on all this stuff. So he would like, you know, help give me like private drum lessons to, to catch up. He had this wooden drum pad. It was like a flat piece of wood with like an angled piece of wood. And on that angled piece of wood was a piece of rubber. And that was given to him by his dad, who was also a drummer. 
who also played for James Brown for a little while. But mm. um, so Gerald was like helping the transition of me going from piano and violin to drums while I was starting to take these drum lessons. And then there's this music store in town called Norwalk Music by the Spermuli family. Uh, and everybody would go and take lessons there for, that was in the area of Fairfield County. And a lot of the teachers that were teaching there were also playing like Ian Broadway um, or just in New York City. And they would come up to the suburbs and teach lessons and stuff. So we were we didn't realize, but there was a lot of people in the Fairfield County area at that time that have gone on to do great things in music. Oh, that's that's cool. So Nor Norwalk, so that's like a a big marching band uh, community, I believe, right? Is that where marching yeah, yeah. band sort of came in here? Yeah, around well, middle school because you know, um, every year for Memorial Day there'd be a parade and all the middle schools and high schools would be in the parade. So even in middle school, you had to learn, you know, a basic cadence street, street beat and some tunes and the people from the high school, like the high school kids would come and teach the middle schoolers, um, to get ready for the parade. But the high school kids, they had actual staff and instructors. Um, so when I got to high school, it was like, I actually didn't play in the marching band my freshman year because um, I was I got into marine biology and well I've always been into science but like I got heavy into marine biology and hepatology which is reptiles and um, my elective I don't know why I chose art I was into I was into art I still have like some artwork that I've made um, I got into art and I was into marine biology and I started to volunteer at the local aquarium, which was the maritime aquarium. And, and, and my friends that were, you know, playing drums and stuff, they, they saw that I wasn't in the marching band for my freshman year. And they're like, dude, what are you doing? And I was like, oh, I'm going to try this other thing. They're like, what? No, get in the marching band. Like, you're an idiot. Get in the marching band. Duh. <laughs> so uh, I joined the marching band my sophomore year. And, um, yeah, then the, the instructors were like into drum corps and stuff. So, um, there's a guy, Jack Mansinger, who was, Oh yeah. I remember Jack. Uh, yeah. UMass alum, but he lived like down the street around the corner from me and he had marched the Connecticut hurricanes and then he went to the, the cadets and he came back to help teach my private instructor at Norwalk music was Dave Dion and then Carrie's oh, really? and yeah, wow. Dave Dion also went to UMass too. And he, yep. you know, he taught the drum line as well. Um, he's the guy that actually fun story. He's the guy that brought me up to UMass. Um, I had applied to a bunch of different schools and my parents were thinking about, you know, Oh, we got to take him to all these schools to audition and check them out. And one of the ones, both Jack and Dave were at UMass at the time while I was still at Norwalk high school. And, um, Jack, you know, was like, come on up. I'm doing this concert this weekend. You could check it out. And Dave Dion was like, yeah, I have to go up this weekend anyway. So he told my parents, you know, I'll drive him up to UMass, show him around as a preliminary visit. And you guys don't have to take him up there. And then I'll bring him back. And my parents are like, great. <laughs> we don't have to drive two hours. Yeah. Have fun. So 
Dave Dion drove about, a red. I remember about Dave Dion is I remember he used to roll his own cigarettes, and I used to always like for a while, for like a month. I never really thought about it. I like I'd see him, and I was like, dude, he is so brazen about he's smoking weed right here in front of everybody. And then finally, I can't remember who it was. Like, dude, he rolls his, those are tobacco cigarettes. He rolls his own cigarettes because it saves money or whatever. <laughs> I, I, that's what I so, remember about him. <laughs> fun fact, speaking of saving money, he drove a red Ford Ranger and it had no bumper. It just had a four by four block of wood where the bump, bumper <laughs> would be because it was $300 cheaper without a bumper. So he was like, I'll just put a piece of wood here. So then he's bringing me up there. And now he did, I mean, I don't, I mean... I guess it's, I don't know, weed is legal now, but like he did smoke a lot of weed. But what we learned is that the weed made him like normal. Like he was so (laughs) high functioning and so like, like what's the, uh, the, like, um, it's like a scientific term when you're like, your brain is so moving so fast and high, so high functioning. Um, not, not on the spectrum, but like, what did, I don't know. It's like, there's this whatever scientific word I'm not thinking of right now. You're the science but, guy. But, uh, <laughs> Bill, Nye, the science guy. Um, <laughs> so, anyway, weed made him, like, a normal human being. It was, like, it mellowed him out, and he could, like, function in society as a normal human being. But um, he was just so far mentally advanced. I remember being in our lessons, and he was trying to get me to understand, like, jazz vibe language and chord changes and extensions. And I was, like, he's going so fast, and I could not keep up. And I was, like, wait. What do you two five one? What are you talking about? What do you mean upper structure voicing? Like I just it was so far ahead of me, and I'm like maybe fourteen, just trying to understand this concept, and he's just blowing. He's like, all right, so this is countdown. <laughs> it's right. like no, <laughs> I need autumn leaves first. Anyway, um, so anyway, Dave brought me up there, and we're in his board ranger, and he's telling me he's like, all right, so you're gonna roll these American spirit tobacco cigarettes for me and I'm going to drive. So, because <laughs> he had a bag of tobacco and a cigarette roller with filters. And it was like, my job was just to roll these cigarettes and put them into empty American spirit packs. So he had packs of cigarettes. Um, now, did I get very good at it? So I didn't need the actual machine. Yes. I could actually do it with my, just my fingers at the, at the end of the ride. But the other thing that was in there was he had one cassette tape and we listened to this cassette tape two hours up to UMass and two hours back. And that was the only cassette tape that he had in the car at the time, which uh, was this artist named Michelle Camilo, which changed my life because I was like, dude, this is amazing. And later, because all the words, it was a clear cassette tape with like white writing on it, but all of the, the white writing had been rubbed off. Because it had gotten so much use. So I didn't know who was on it. I didn't know what the songs were. I didn't know what album it was. Um, so I finally found it. It was on The album was on fire. And mm-hmm. I got to read the liner notes. Because growing up with the records, I would always read all the liner notes. To find out who's on this oh, yeah. and who's playing Anytime. here. So, yeah. So I found out the three drummers on that were Marvin Smitty-Smith, Dave Weckl, and Joel Rosenblatt. And I have since met and befriended all three of them. But... Um, Man, that was like that hearing Joel Rosenblatt on on fire, the the title track of the album yeah. like blew do, do, my do, do, mind. Do, do, Dave Weckl was great. Mm-hmm. Oh, killer, killer tune. 
Actually, I yeah, remember yeah. Dave Dion. Dave Ruckel was great, but... Dave Dion actually arranged that for Jazz One when I when we were there. Yeah, like they made ah. a big band arrangement of On Fire. Awesome. Yeah, the other person Dave introduced me to was Chick Corea. Um, one of the songs that he would list that he would play to mellow out was uh, children's song. So he taught that to me, um, and I still like every once in a while I'm like, do I still remember this thing? I'll pull it out and play it but senor mouse spain like these were all songs that like the return to forever album wore that out um but these are all things that dave introduced me to but um so then um let's see what else there was the whole weekend up at umass that i got my introduction there but then i came back home and then you know dave was going to finish his master so i started taking lessons with other people like this uh, woman Carries Bermuli and um, also Ken Ross was a guy who was playing at the Westchester Broadway Theater. But the thing about Ken, the important part about him was he was one of the people to kind of expand my knowledge. Because high school was, yes, it was very marching band heavy, but there was a lot of um, music education, as I said, in Fairfield County with like great music educators, but also other high school band programs, right? So there would be marching band contests, there would be concert band contests, and there would also be jazz band contests where these bands, the schools would go to different schools and compete with each other. And a lot of these students were all taking lessons at Norwalk High School, or um, Norwalk Music. There was a school in Fairfield, too, that was really good. I know um, the big names out of Fairfield were like Steve McKellogg, who went to UMass, um, Ian McHugh, who went to Berkeley, and uh, John Mayer, who went to Berkeley as well. But there was a great guitar teacher in Fairfield that was teaching all those guys. I can't remember him. Um, and then there was a guy in Norwalk, Link Chamberlain, who taught like Gil Paris, Tim DeHuff, um, Andy Abel, uh, just other. Like he was a guitar legend. He passed away, but he taught all these guitar monsters uh, and then the drums was like i said mike's familiar jr ken ross who got me into or actually this guy Brit brito who i went to school with he marched in the hawthorne caballeros that was the first drum corps i marched in and he got me into that and he taught me all like this latin percussion at first because the first concert we went to go see live was tito puente at the stanford palace theater my dad mm-hmm. took me and some of my friends to go see that and we were just like blown away like you could have five drummers on the stage this is crazy <laughs> and so then i was like way into latin music and brit was like oh man i'm doing this at the hawthorne caballeros you got to check this out so then when i went to lessons and ken was subbing ken was like oh you're into this stuff i'm taking um latin percussion lessons at the harbor boys school which is like 110th uh in harlem and it was a place where, like, Johnny Almendra and, and all these Latin greats would go to and take and teach out of. And when, like, Tito Puente's band was in town, that's where they would rehearse. You know, like, all the that was the hub. So one of the people that started spending time at the Harbor Boys School was Horacio El Negro Hernandez. And he had just came over. He defected out of Cuba and moved to Italy. And then he had just come to New York City. So Ken got to meet him at an early point in his in his American career. And they kind of became friends and Negra had all these ideas to like write a book. And Ken was like, Whoa, you're way advanced for Americans. You got to slow down. You got to start with the clave. You got to break it down for them. So 
uh, Ken started helping him organize the ideas for his book, which is now out. It's called Conversations in Clave. And Ken would print out pages from the book in uh, and bring them into our lessons. Like, he, like they would be a printout. Be like, okay, today we're going to learn Mozambique. And um, so that was like my first introduction to heavy, heavy Afro-Cuban stuff in high school. Oh, that's um, really cool. Because so I, I think that is really... You know, I, all I know about it is like I played in a merengue band and I played in a salsa band. But I, in an, you know, in each of those groups, always would have at least three percussionists, and and I was always blown away by all the different grooves that they had and uh, and the just like if I ever try to talk to somebody about like Latin rhythms or whatever, I it's like over my head. Like I, there's so. M- there's so many different nuances in Latin percussion and the different rhythms and stuff. I'm like, wow. Like I, I could never, I shouldn't say I could never, I, I don't know if I would ever take the time to like learn all those things. I'm like, that's, that's incredible. I was wondering when that sort of started for you. Cause that's, cause then that's what you actually got your major in at UMass, right? Was like Latin percussion or performance or something like well, that. Well, it was, I mean, they only had the, it was classical or jazz were kind of the two. So it was an AAJ, African-American music and jazz with a concentration in the Afro-Cuban percussion. Um, right, I okay. definitely went deep into that. Uh, but yeah, it, Ken was Ken and Brit were like the first two to kind of like help steer me in the direction of like, here's some stuff you should know. Um, and then when I got to UMass, I realized how much I didn't know. <laughs> there was a guy named Hillary Noble who lived in Palmer, uh, but he would play in this band called N-Train out in Boston. Oh, but yeah. he would come to, he would come to UMass and practice. And we had this deal. I made a copy of the key for my practice room. Cause when you were a jazz major, you got a, there was a certain pra- uh, practice room area that was allotted for jazz drum and percussion majors. So I made a copy of the key illegally. It says on the key, do not, do not copy. copy. And I made yeah, a copy I remember of that. that. <laughs> yeah. And it was a $5 deposit, which I'm sure UMass still has because I never returned the key. I still have it. <laughs> and I made a copy <laughs> for Hillary. And the deal was he could use my practice room to practice when I was in class. So I had my schedule on the wall. And you could see, okay, Mondays at 11.15, you're up in Byzantin watching the recital. So or Tuesdays, whatever. So you can go. I can go into practice. But he had to give me lessons. So he would give me lessons because he was Swiss, and he played saxophone and percussion. And because he was Swiss and not American, he was able to freely travel to Cuba. And he studied with one of the greats there, Tatawines. So he was showing like that was another like, okay, you have a small idea, you know, like the tip of the iceberg when you got out of high school. But here's, you know here's the real stuff and he was going deep and again it was like me just trying to catch up just like dude wait what was that how do you do that what's the what is this you know um i had like these basic ideas and and uh hillary kind of put me through the ringer like no you got to fix your sound your technique's a little messy um so that and that was and he was like and you can't just learn congas you got to learn how to play bongos and you got to learn how to play timbales and you got to learn the minor percussion too how to play the guru like he was like the one it was like if you're going to play this music 
you have to learn all of this stuff. It's not just, oh, I'm a conga player. You know, you can, ha- you can excel as like, oh, I, this is a stronger instrument for me. But you have to know because it's a conversation. It's a bunch of simple rhythms layered on top of each other. And if you don't understand what that guy's doing, then you're going to play the wrong thing or you're going to double what he's doing. And that's like the worst thing. When you, if he's already playing it, you play this other thing, you know. Um, so, yeah, UMass was like a huge eye opener. But I didn't actually jump into jazz right away because I'm sure you might have heard um, you have to have something to fall back on or, mm. you know, uh, yeah, you sure. need a backup plan. So that was hearing that all as I was getting ready to apply to schools and when I finally got to school. So I came in as a music ed major. And I remember seeing my friend uh, Darren Hazlett getting ready for like bassoon tech, trying to like make his own double read. And I was like, I do not want any part of that. (laughs) And uh, Jack Mansinger was still at the school at the time. And I remember this was in the library across the hall from, uh, 36 where, cause he became the librarian so that he could keep his giant marimba that he got from Lee Howard Stevens in there and lock the door and practice whenever he wanted. So I remember having a conversation with him where he was like, dude, why are you music ed if all you want to do is perform? And I was like, because everybody says I need to have a fallback plan and you know, what if I don't make it? And he's like, yeah, but right now you're spending 50% of your efforts on preparing to fail and you're spending 50% of your efforts trying to succeed. He's like, you're not going to do well at either one of them. He's like, go upstairs, change the performance, give it all you've got. And if you don't make it, then you can, you know, uh, figure out something else and regroup. He's like, you got plenty of time. He's like, now is not the time to be hedging your bets. So the next day went upstairs to Helen Boyden and I was like, I need to change my major. She's like, what are you right now? And I was like, music ed. She's like, well, what do you want to do? And I was like, perform. She's like, okay, you got to fill these forms out and we'll switch you to performance. Um, but the thing was, that was like the middle of the fall semester. So when the spring semester is coming up, there's all those classes that you know that are like, oh, well, you have to take the prerequisite in the fall. So I ended up just uh, learning excerpts and practicing a ton in the spring and taking some of like the gen ed not gen eds as far as like English and science, but like harmony and theory and, and piano. Fortunately, I passed into harmony and theory and piano really far ahead. So it was okay. Like I was placed into piano three, like when I walked into the door oh, that's and great. I was in like harmony theory two, when I walked into the door, you know, and thanks yeah. to like Dave Dion, like I remember, um, I used to work, I worked at Sugar Jones, the cookie place. We for oh the listeners that may gosh. not know, five four nine five six six three. That was one of the numbers I had memorized. But the other oh one was DP Doe two yeah. two five six oh. one six one six four one three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it took, it took I worked years at Sugar to, Jones uh, to get that off my waistline. Yep. <laughs> um, DP Doe. Yeah. Here's one. My son's. My son went to RIT, and they have a freaking DP Doe out there. I couldn't believe I saw it, and I was like, dude, have you got DP Doe? He's like, what is that? <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> Did you start salivating? <laughs> no, I, I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're like, oh. You start getting, like, the sweats. You're like, oh. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Uh, but, yeah, so 
I worked at Sugar Jones, which was open from like 6 p.m. till 2 a.m., right? So, uh, and the guy that owned Sugar Jones also owned the bakery, the cafe above it, Claudia's Cafe. So from 5 a.m. till 6 p.m., the ovens would bake all of the stuff that the cafe needed. But then from 6 p.m. till 2 a.m., it was strictly cookies, quarts of milk, and Ben and Jerry's pints of ice cream. And we delivered it to your door for the listeners that may not know. So um, I would work until like 2 a.m. delivering cookies and making cookies. And then I'd have to roll into like 9.05 Harmony and Theory or like 8.05 whatever, 8.10. And I was like, I remember I had a deal with, I forget who my Harmony and Theory teacher was. uh, But we had a deal because she knew I was working late. If I fell behind in like test scores and knowing where we are in the Harmony Theory stuff, I would have to re- I would have to be there on time. But as long as I could keep up, I could come in up to 15 to 20 minutes late every day we had this. And I remember I rolled into class like 35 minutes late one day and Caitlin McDonald was sitting next to me and she and she was like trying to wrap her head around secondary dominance and uh the teacher was like oh david thanks for joining us uh can you tell us the secondary dominant of this and i looked at the board and i was like oh yeah it's that and she's like good job and like just to make sure that i like i was i like and caitlin was like how did you do that how did you walk in <laughs> miss the entire lesson and know this answer like and i was like i don't know it just it's coming easy to me now because of the foundation i had in high school or whatever and that was like something that fortunately I was able to, like I said, when I switched to classical performance and you have to wait to take the class at time, I was already ahead of the schedule. So I had passed, you know, up ahead in front of whatever. So now I switched to classical performance and now I'm just learning excerpts. They're like preparing me to like go into an orchestra. It's like, uh, you know, the Romeo and Juliet or excerpt, yeah, 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 yeah. the Porgy and Bess excerpt. And what's the famous I, snare drum? Lieutenant Kiji. Lieutenant, yeah, like I, oh, what? What's there's a there's a snare drum excerpt, and I'm screwing it up. It's it's okay because yeah, yeah. I don't even remember it at this point. <laughs> <laughs> All I'm playing is pop yeah. music these days. I couldn't even spell you a yeah. melodic minor scale right now. No, right. and I'm kidding. I I could. <laughs> um, but like the fact that like it was like all these excerpts and I hated it. I was like, this is I don't like this. And it was like two in the morning. I was down in the percussion cage. And I was trying to memorize the magic flute on orchestra bells. And I snapped. And I was like, ah, I can't do this anymore. I t- because the, the reason the magic flute is hard is because the melody changes ever so slightly by like one eighth note as it goes through. It's like just slightly, and I could not memorize it. And I was like, oh, I'm done. So I went back to Helen Boyden. <laughs> I was like, Helen, what other performance majors do you have? And she's like, Jazz? Do you like jazz? And I was like, I'm in it. Just put me in it. I don't even care. Yes. And that's when it was like my world opened up thanks to Jeff Holmes. Um, you know, because I like my foundations were being taken care of by like Colin McNutt and Tom Hanna with the marching band, right? They were making me foundationally a better player. But as far as like opening my world to other ensembles, that was like Jeff Holmes because, you know, we had the arranging composition classes. We had the improv and theory classes. He had the studio orchestra, which 
for the listeners oh, yeah. that may not know, the the app or the platform finale was just coming out while we were in school. There was no Sibelius. Like finale was like just coming out, and people were starting to learn it on the computer. But predominantly, everybody had to write things by hand. So you had to write out the score, and then you had to write out the individual parts from the score by hand. And when we had he had the studio orchestra. And we would write stuff in arrange and composition class and then write all the parts and bring it down to the studio orchestra. And then the studio orchestra would play it. And it would be like a big band chart or be commercial jingle. I remember doing writing a jingle for a commercial and Chris Kozak was the narrator for the commercial. Like we performed all of our jingles in class and uh, like a a late late night tonight show type walk on. We had to like prepare those. It was like, okay. Jeff Holmes pretended to be like Johnny Carson and like somebody would walk on and the band would have to play and then like cut and like, you know, like all this stuff like Jeff Holmes was exposing us to and we would get to hear so bad. Oh man, it was so great. And we got to hear our arrangements like in real time. It was like, and he would stand up on the podium with you. You'd have to conduct it and he'd stand next to you and he'd be like, okay, well now you see, that doesn't work out really well, that combination. Maybe if you put a cup mute on the trumpet and paired it with, like, a clarinet, you get that softer sound you're looking for. Like, that kind of stuff, like, Jeff is giving you hands-on experience. And then he would go down and play with the Vanguard Jazz Orchestra, or he'd play in the pit for Miss Saigon or Cats, and then come back and give us, this is what you need to know if you're going to try and make it. You know, like, that was... What he would do, it was like, oh my god, I had no idea. And I remember years later when uh, I came back to play at, at UMass with my later teacher, Stefan Harris. Stefan was like, man, I wish I had these classes. Like, he saw these classes going on because he was there for like a week or whatever as artist residence, and he was just blown away at what was going on. He's like, you know, there's some conservatories that don't give you this level of education, and he, and he was really blown away by that. So I was like, cool i'm in i'm in a good place um well that's neat but so so now let me ask you this now that you're you're out of college and you are performing and playing i'm assuming you do well i know you do because you told me about that you have a student uh right after this but how how much teaching do you do not a lot um i have maybe 10 or less students um some are virtual summer in person um but that's because i just don't have the time so like the students i have are like really committed and like the one i have right now he he just got into belmont in tennessee um so we were working on stuff for like his audition and whatever but um yeah yeah i just don't have the time to teach so i have very it has to be very committed students and they have to like show a certain rate uh i mean they're all ages it's not just kids in school like some are adults too um but because most of my time is spent either playing live uh or recording from home like right now i know the listeners are listening they can't see me but i'm in a drum room um there's if you go to like my instagram page there's pictures of it in there somewhere but um this is where i record so a lot of people will send me tracks i'll record right here and i'll send it back and uh that's like half of what i do the other half is playing live so people hire me as a side person to do either do a one-off or like go on the road for tours and the tricky part is if uh i have to record something and i'm on the road 
So then I have to like find time when I can do that. So um, some stuff you can record in a hotel room quietly. Um, but I also recorded a loop and one shot library that people can buy. So I have all those files. So sometimes I can get away with doing like some drum programming in my hotel room with all the samples that I created of me playing <laughs> my stuff. Oh, man. So, you know, sometimes I can get away with that if it's like, oh, I can do this project while I'm on the road or I can just contact a client and be like, when do you need this? I'll be back home at this point and I can do it then or whatever. So that's the only tricky uh, toss up there. So, yeah, so I get you. Like, I, I know I when I teach private lessons now, which is rare, um, in fact, for the last, I don't know, eight or nine years, I've basically I only have like one student. And it's usually like whoever the real go getter is in town, if there is one. Sometimes there isn't. And I don't. I don't teach private lessons, you know. But uh, because I, I teach lessons all day, that's what I do. So it's like me teaching private lessons. It's like if you're not serious or if you're not prepared. In fact, I tell the high school kids, I'm like, if you're not prepared, send me a text and be like, yeah, I'm not going to be able to make it this week I've been too busy I've had tests I've had to study for this we had to go away or whatever I don't care what the reason is but as soon as you come to a lesson and you're not prepared and I'm miserable during the lesson we will absolutely maybe not be doing lessons anymore and don't take it personally I'm not <laughs> mad at you you know and these kids are all like my favorite suit lots of times I started them on the trumpet or whatever back in the day but what I was going to ask a little bit is like when you do teach private lessons do you just draw on experiences from like you getting lessons as a kid is, you know, cause it's, it is funny. Cause I think a lot of, um, my private trumpet teacher growing up was awesome. He was an awesome teacher. Well, like one of the best teachers I ever had. Um, but he was a performance major at Boston conservatory I and mean, played in two symphonies, you know, like, so I, I think a lot of people think, oh, well, you need that education degree or whatever. And, and, uh, like, do you ever feel like, oh, I wish I took an edu had an education degree when you're teaching private lessons? Or are you like, yeah, you know, I don't need it? Nope. No, I, well, I don't need it because I got hands on teaching. So after I aged out of drum corps, like, I marched for seven years, um, I did Boston Crusaders and the Cadets, um, I got asked to go back and help teach. Uh, I actually did Blast, too. I remember um, that. I remember seeing you in Blast. I was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> so after I got out of Blast, they actually asked me to do a little bit of consulting to help with the Afro-Cuban stuff because some of the guys didn't know how to, to do the Afro-Cuban stuff. I remember staying up at some hotel super late with the Kit Chatham, just going over all the parts and, um, you know... Um, a couple of the other guys, like I was, you know, like I was one of the only people that could explain and teach that stuff. And then same thing with the drum corps. I got brought in to help out a few drum corps. Um, I helped out the cadets. I helped out the crossmen. Um, so I was thrown back into teaching because I was teaching way more lessons at the time, private lessons and stuff. And then every year, Tom Hannum would bring me back to teach with him at UMass's band camp. But like, Teaching with Tom and Colin McNutt um, is like a whole education in itself in Absolutely. how to teach. And he would explain, like, this is what needs to happen and this is why. And, you know, um, he also gave a percussion arranging a composition class 
uh, every other semester for a while where he would go and open up his files and talk about why he wrote this, which was also a huge education thing because he was like, this is why I wrote the way I wrote and this is what it would teach them and they needed to learn this so that I wrote this, you know, it was like, so, and that has helped me immensely. Like Tom was like my second dad. He still is. <laughs> um, and he, just having to teach with him every year all the like consistently because then he also had me come back and write for the marimba band and come sometimes and teach that as well so like i was learning how to teach from a master educator so i didn't need to go and take you know flute tech and you know and then there were some books i went and got some books like there was a book called teaching rhythm by i think it's david newell it's got like a green cover and this was a band director who had a band that couldn't play rhythmically well. And he was like, how come when I go to these wind band competitions, these other bands could play well? So he kind of broke down how to teach rhythm and he associated it with a language. You know, when you learn a language, you don't, they don't hand you the dictionary and be like, all right, here's all the words you need. Good luck. Like it's an oral thing first. Like you start by orally repeating and then later on they show you what it is that you're saying, like, you know, if I'm like right here, phone, if I kept saying phone, phone, and then I showed you phone, phone, you're like, oh, that's a phone. So then you start to put together. So he started doing that with rhythms. He would just have people repeat rhythms and then show them what it looked like. And then sometimes you can associate those rhythms with things you already know. Like one of my teachers was animal names, you know, um, so like quarter notes are cat, eighth notes are monkey, two sixteenths and an eighth is billy goat. An eighth and two sixteenths is ant eater. Four sixteenths is alligator. But then when you go to triplets, that's a different thing. So it's hickory dickory, you know. Um, but so like <clears throat> those rhythms and that foundation was like huge because people will forgive wrong notes before they forgive rhythms. Um, you know, when you're on a dance floor, if somebody plays a wrong note, they don't care. But if you can't keep the beat steady, everybody's turning around and looking at you. Oh yeah. yeah so yeah, that yeah. was a book that was huge. Um, there's a couple others. I mean, if you, I could go in my bookshelves in the other room, I could go tell you if you need them for like show notes or whatever. I I think it's just good to, um, I think it's just good to hear, you know, different perspectives. Cause uh, I just think sometimes too, you know, cause not everybody is like you, you know, like uh, I know people that play guitar or play, I know saxophone. I, I know a couple people that play instruments in the area and you know they want to be a gigger. They want to be a professional musician. And, you know, they're good. They're just not good enough. So that's, that's what they have to do. So then they keep applying for, like, public school jobs. And I'm like, they're not getting hired, at least not in my town, because I know that they're not – that's not what they want to do. That this is – compl- yeah. like, teaching in a public school is completely fallback. And I don't want someone teaching in my school system – that's doing a fall, like that's their fallback because that's not what they really want to be doing. And, and so I just, you know, and, um, well, I would that, say like one of the things that I appreciate more than anything is how lucky I was to have such great educators. Like I remember all my teachers names. I know who they were. I know what they were responsible for teaching me. You know, some of the ones I didn't mention, I got to study with Stefan Harris and then later play with him. Giovanni Hildago, Yusef Latif, Richie Flores, um, Thomas Diani over in London, 
um, Williams Cumberbatch, you know, like these are all guys that like <clears throat> helped me Milton Cardona, uh, like that helped me understand what I needed to do to get better. And they did it in a way that I could understand. Sometimes, you know, like it was ahead of me and I needed to catch up, but they were pushing me to be better. And they were people that taught because they liked teaching. And I don't think that you should go into teaching if it is just a plan B or because you didn't make it doing this other thing. You should go into teaching because you want to help people get better and that you want to teach, not because, oh, I didn't make it as a gigger. No, if you didn't make it gigging, I don't know, go be a chef, go do something else, <laughs> you know, don't, because you, you're, you're shaping people's lives and you should be shaping them for the better. And a lot of times in middle and high school, you're teaching life through music. So if you're angry at your own life and you're taking it out, like you're, I make sure that when I'm teaching my students, I'm teaching them for the future. I'm not just teaching them like what I was taught. I'm teaching them stuff that is going to help them be better in the future, whether it's understanding technology or um, just being able to make better life decisions for themselves. Like th I'm, it, when you come to me for lessons, it's not just how to play like paradiddles and ratamacues. It's like, this is what's going to keep you employed. This is going to be how you're going to pay your bills. You know, some of the students I have, <clears throat> some of the adult ones, we talk like, we even talk like finance. Cause like you get out of school and you're like, Probably, if you don't have a scholarship that covers everything, you're probably going to have some kind of debt. Or you're going to have to pay rent and buy groceries. So it's like, how are you going to be set up to do this stuff, you know, financially? You know, obviously, you want to play the big gigs, but there's only so many gigs, you know. Like, there's only 40 spots on the New York Yankees. And mm -hmm. if you don't make those 40 roster spots, you're not going to be on the Yankees, right? There's Right now... There's only so many symphony orchestras. There's only so many universities that you could teach at. There's only, well, like, bands are different because you could create a new band tomorrow. That's kind of why I went into music as opposed to, like, baseball, because you could start a new band the next day. But will that band be successful? You know what I mean? As far as, like, right now, high-profile gigs are things that, like, I'm kind of in, in the world of going after. And there's only a certain amount of, like, high-profile artists and only a certain amount of them bring out a percussionist instead of, you know, they, they all have drummers mm -hmm. or sometimes if it's like hip hop and R and B, they'll just go out with a DJ and play to a track or whatever, you know? So yep. you, you have to think about like the future, like how can I be employed? How can I get these gigs? You know, what do I need to do to, to, so as an educator, you need to think about that for your students. Sure. So, during uh during the podcast uh, uh your podcast uh with Dave Fox you said something and I think that this is definitely something that I think educators should hear your perspective on you said when you were in the UMass marching band you said I, I'm going to mess it up but you said something like you know the UMass band was a sugar cookie and I was the chocolate chip and <laughs> you know and so but I will say, I, I want to know what, from your perspective, you know, and maybe like if you think there's something that educators should think about, um, you know, you being, I, I, you know, you said in UMass, like, I, I don't know, uh, like you were one of the only black people in the mar marching band, which was like, you know, 300 people large 
you know, and I don't know what it, I don't even know what the demo, demographic is uh, where you grew up in in high school, but um, you know, I, I just I'm I'm curious as to like, you know, if if you had any struggles with that, or if there's anything that you could put out to a, a, a teacher to be like, hey, you know, something to consider. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, first, I will say representation matters because uh, I was fortunate. So in Fairfield County, Stanford and Norwalk are more of the quote unquote middle class towns. Right. That's a lot of people that work in the other wealthy towns will live there. Um, Bridgeport is another one. Right. So if you have, you have Fairfield County and I would say Bridgeport, Stanford, Norwalk are, are kind of the working class towns. Um and then surrounding it are just immense wealth. Greenwich, Darien, New Canaan, Fairfield, uh, you name it, Southport, Westport, Wilton, Weston. Just so much wealth. And so the fact that, like, my parents didn't send me to that private school and I went to, like, a normal, quote-unquote, high school, like, I had equal amounts of people of color, women to men, and representation matters. Like I, at a young age, I had people of color teaching me. I had women teaching me. So it was not out of the ordinary for me to be taught by a woman or a person of color. Like I saw representation in front of me. Whereas when I got to UMass, you know, that was a university that was, you know, it, I think it was like when I was there, it was like 2% were people of color, you know, which is shameful. You know, uh, meaning two percent in terms of student body or teaching uh, teaching staff. Student body, student body. Yeah, it was like because I remember the orientation. We went to the New Africa House, and they were like, "There's about two percent to three percent people of color." I, it may be different now. I have no idea, but it was like of this. It was a lot of Caucasians that I was surrounded by, and you know, growing up in Fairfield County, I got used to. I knew how to associate when I was around a group of Caucasians, especially wealthy ones. And I knew how to associate when I was with friends of mine that might've grown up in the hood, you know? And it was funny because, uh, to the people that were Caucasian that were super wealthy, they would look at me as like, Oh, he's, he's black, but he's one of the good ones, you know? And then the people of my friends in the hood, they were like, you know, we got to look out for you because we could tell that you're different and you're going to make it. So we're going to support you. You know, like there was, I, there was people I knew that were like in gangs and they're like, no, we'll be cool with you, but you know, you're going to succeed. You need to, you know, like I was, you know, at a younger age, they made fun of a little bit that like I was not black enough for the black people. Um, but I was not white enough for white people uh, because I was educated because I could speak clearly and use the right words and vocabulary and so there was like a, a weird and any friends of mine that were like black and nerdy know exactly what i'm talking about right now <laughs> so i will say representation matters and seeing people that look like you in positions of authority and power um is huge not only for your confidence but just in no like when obama got elected president i was like i didn't even know this was possible <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like a black man is president in a house that was built by slaves. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. this is mind blowing to me. But like 
certain things like that people don't think about, you know, like I don't I, you probably haven't had to have the talk with your your family if you even know what that is. Go for it. it yeah, you're looking to be like the talk is, you know, what black parents will tell black people, black children about like when you go into a sc- when you go into a store, don't touch anything unless you're prepared to buy it. You know, don't put anything in your bag unless you are going to buy it because they'll think you're shoplifting. When you get pulled over by the police, crack your window, put your hands on the steering wheel or on the dashboard so that there's they can see, turn the light, inside light on. So, like, there's all kinds of things that you get mm-hmm. talked to about if you're a person of color that Caucasian people don't have to deal with. And, like, that is what I'm saying. That representation matters. So when you have a teacher that looks like you that has gone through that and they're like, hey, I can help you then that that's huge in your your spectrum of uh what is possible for your for you to achieve in your life well that's great thanks so much for sharing that like this is gonna seem super lame that i even bring this up Uh, but i remember when i was playing in a merengue band and i remember there was just one i don't know for some reason there was one night in particular i think it was maybe in new haven and I I was the only white person in this club. And and I was I I spoke and everybody's speaking Spanish, right? And in, in there. And I remember feeling just that one night, one night, and I remember how uncomfortable I felt and how out of place I was. And I remember like the next day talking to Christy and my wife she was my girlfriend at the time and I'm being like I I that must be like what a minority would feel like a lot of times or like, like if if you're you're the one black guy in the marching band like is that what it's like I I don't know that answer but I I can tell you like I from yes, that day that on, is exactly from that day that on, exactly I had it feels a like. different perspective on that, t- you know, and that was like literally one night because most most of the other nights it's like sometimes there'd be another white guy in the band or sometimes, you know, there'd be. But that particular night I stuck out like a sore thumb and the fact that I'm like six inches taller than everybody uh, <laughs> also made it a little weird. So it's like but but man, I, I, I really appreciate you um, uh, going on that topic. Um, so last couple things here, Damon, I know you got to go, but, um, a couple things that I ask everybody, uh, one would be, what are two of your two or three, whatever, the top few musical moments in your life that you can remember? It doesn't, it doesn't matter. There's no, doesn't have to be from college, high school, um, professional, anything. Just when you think back, wow, that performance was something. Or it was just off the top of my head. Um, I got to play at the Olympics twice. Um, once in '96 in Atlanta with the cadets, which was unbelievable. The closing ceremonies and seeing like President Clinton in front of us and all the other celebrities. You know, like to walk. We had to walk down the hallway to or the tunnel in the Atlanta Stadium to get out to the field and. Like, as we're walking by, it's like, there's Stevie Wonder, and there's, uh, you know, uh, Tony Hawk, and it was like, boys, it was like, you name it, we're like, walking by all these celebrities, um, and then, 
the other second time I played the Olympics was in 2012 in London, and that was like like a high end pep rally. So it was like we were the musical act performing for all the athletes and coaches and supporters. So you know, um, Secret Service was there because Mitt Romney was there because he's his family's big into dr- dressage which is like a step above equestrian. It's like horse dancing. Um, so like he was there. Our guest of honor was Muhammad Ali, who coincidentally was the person that lit the torch for the 96 Olympics. So I was like, this is the second time that I've seen Muhammad Ali at the Olympics. Like <laughs> he was like five feet away from me. Um, wow. You know, and just so being at the Olympics twice was huge. And um, I got to work with Madonna for the Super Bowl. Uh, back in 2012 that was a huge experience because i thought it was gonna be like a one-off thing and it ended up being like the better part of like a a year because i kept getting brought back for different aspects of her forthcoming tour that was coming out and um so those are a couple off the top of my head nice thank you that's great um and lastly i have a feeling it's quite eclectic uh like mine uh, but what are, you know, what do you, what are you listening to? Like, what do you, you know, you're in the car, you're in the, whatever you're hanging out and you listen to music. What are you listening to? Uh, believe it or not, when I'm in the car, I either listen to silence <laughs> or, uh, like a podcast, you know, like our news or something, you know, um, but like as far as listening to music for leisure, that happens when uh, new albums come out. Like if a friend puts out a new album, like oh, like I guess not too long. This drummer I know, Ross Ross Peterson, just put out a new single, so I'll go listen to that. But a lot of times when I'm listening to music, it's because I have to learn it. So it's like oh, I have to listen to this person's album, and then I need to learn it, or I need to listen to these demos because I need to record on them. So if I'm getting in the car. Um, it's just silence or um, a podcast. That's funny. I'm I'm pretty similar. I listen to mostly talk radio. I would say like it's it's funny or podcasts. Yeah, it's 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 really weird, right? It's almost like we're we get uh, overly saturated with music, and plus, yeah, you know, it's like if you're like me, if I get an album that I really like, I I just I have that thing loop, 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 loop for like, you know, weeks. And then I'm like super sick of it. <laughs> so, but uh, yeah, uh, yeah. You I need a break you. from it. You are not the only one to say, oh, I listen to, you know, talk radio. I, I don't really listen to music that much. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Yeah. You know, a friend's albums. When I know a friend's album has come out or it, an artist that I'm interested in, you know, I remember when like Yeba's album came out or like Emily King, like those were two new albums that I was looking forward to. Um, you know, uh, Madison Cunningham was another one. Um, yeah. Those were like three artists that I was like, when those, I was really looking forward to those albums, uh, Robert Glasper one, I guess am I answering your question now? Um, yeah. But like, uh, you know, they're, they're albums of people that I kind of know or know somebody that worked on it. So then, you know, yeah, that's always having it. Yeah. So, Oh, thanks so much, Damon. I really appreciate you uh, you taking the time and doing this, and um, uh, just thanks for having love me. Love hearing the insights and everything. And good luck with 
playing and good luck with your podcast and everything, man. It's it's awesome. Thanks. So discussions Thank you. Good and luck percussion, with your right? podcast. Discussions and yes, percussion. Yes, sir. Yes, yeah. So if you're a percussionist out there, after you listen to mine, go check out. <laughs> how many? You have like, I can't remember how many. You have like hundreds of episodes. Uh, yeah, I just put out 343 the other day. Wow. So every Tuesday impressive. for almost eight years. Yeah. So. I'm, I have not really officially released yet, and I am, uh, I am under 10 at the moment. But I will say I have like five or six more that I'm recording in the next couple of weeks, and uh, officially will be launching soon, so we'll see. <laughs> yeah, well, if, if there's a preference, I would love to be episode 007. <laughs> Let me think about like, this for and a you, second. Like, yeah, I don't know what number you're I up to, actually, but if you could make me 007... Is, I, I swear, like, I actually think this is episode eight. I think this is the. Ah. Eight, I think this is the eighth one, but that doesn't mean I'm going to put them out in order. <laughs> check, check your Venmo. <laughs> Double, yeah. Yeah. Check your Venmo. Huh? <laughs> That's funny. All right, done deal, my friend. Double seven. I'm going to remember that. Uh, thanks so much, Damon. Thanks for having me, Tom. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Everything Music Ed podcast. Be sure to check out future episodes as we talk to other educators from different teaching environments and cover areas of instruction such as concert band, jazz band, marching band, chorus, orchestra, general music, music tech, special needs, and much more. The theme music for the Everything Music Ed podcast is Jig, composed and arranged by Wally Minko. Jig is performed by Wayne Bergeron and can be found on his album, Full Circle. The Everything Music Ed podcast logo was created by Sarah Goulart. <laughs>